You're listening to PZ's Podcast, a guided tour of ancient truths and absurd tales for the modern pilgrim. PZ is space cruising at low altitudes most days through a galaxy of phantom planets of the mind, ever in search of an answer to his wound. Is he a space Parsifal bleeding under his suit but hopeful for journey's end? Buckle up and join him now as he blasts by Mars and Venus, rounding Luna in sure and certain hope of our childhood's end. You can reach PZ while he is on this quest at pzspodcast at gmail.com. Now, here's PZ. This podcast is entitled Flowers for Algernon 2 and is episode 103 and continues as its text some of the stories of Algernon Blackwood, who died in 1951, with an attempt to um, grab hold of the insights here relating to the death of the ego. Because while the death of the ego is something easy to talk about and something to interiorize and something to sort of give symbolic vesture to, what we're really talking about is what happens at death itself when we actually die, when the ego actually dies. The ego does not, whatever was the the sniveling character, as Huxley describes it, who is... uh, who has been this uh, character that I am, dies, it really dies. And something quite larger and bigger is involved in what, uh, in, in what remains eternal and uh, enduring. And uh, we have to really come face to face with death is death. It's not death of a part of you. It's death of the, the part to whom your feeling and your willing is actually attached. And um, I said this in Podcast 100, but I now say it again in uh, terms of uh, two short stories by Algernon Blackwood, who had reacted vigorously and decisively against the form of evangelical Christianity in which he had been reared, which was called Sandemanianism, and I made one mistake uh, uh, last time. Robert Sandeman's name was spelled S-A-N-D-E-M-A-N, and um, Blackwood's uh, reaction uh, against the heaviness uh, and what he regarded as the the extraordinary exclusiveness uh, of Sandemanianism, which is actually somewhat unfair. Nevertheless, it's how he received it and how many young Sandemanians, I'm sure, received it because, you know, the last Sandemanian church closed in 1984. I think there are maybe two Sandemanians left, just so you know. it's These movements don't have a guarantee on, uh, on life unless they live, unless they actually touch people. Now, um, um, Blackwood uh, put... Uh, a uh, vision of what it is to die and to live uh, very powerfully and alternatively in 
his mid-period literature, and he never turned his back on this view, but he, like a lot of wonderful older people, he became more puckish and more naughty in the very best possible way and delightful as he grew older, and he became a really celebrated both writer and teller of children's stories. But in two uh, stories I'm going to talk about today, we see a picture of what actually happens when you are able to separate right now or disattach to some serious extent and a growing extent, hopefully, before you die so you're not taken by surprise, which is so often the case. You've seen it in others, and surely you don't want to see it in yourself, do you? I mean, do you want to be taken by surprise by the diagnosis that you have but two weeks to live or two days to live, someone I love very much? very young person in their early 30s almost died recently, Uh, a real thing, a a lovely person who was in uh, this person's early 30s almost actually died in a medical emergency. And it can happen and it will happen. And so better to think about this thing positively and hopefully and hopefully accurately and truly. Now, the two stories of uh, Blackwood are... A Descent into Egypt and the Centaur. And I find it sometimes helpful to actually read the text. And I'm going to read two accounts. One is fairly long of the hero, or shall I say the object of the story, A Descent into Egypt, which occurs in um, uh, Blackwood's greatest collection, which I have from Jim Reed's bookstore, thanks to my wonderful friend, John Harris Harper, entitled Incredible Adventures from the year 1914. And it tells the story of a very um, well-bred and refined English gentleman who becomes strongly attracted to the power of Egyptian religion, ancient Egyptian religion, with a strong uh, um, sense of its greatness, not its its, um, um, sort of odd character, but rather its universal character in relation to Akhenaton and uh, monotheism and the spirit world. But uh, take all that aside, in the story A Descent into Egypt, Blackwood describes a man who has, for all practical purposes, died, and yet, behold, he lives, like the character Helen, who is referenced in the early section of Huxley's Genius and the Goddess. Now, I'm going to read a fairly long passage, and I think you'll... uh, I'm glad I'm going to read it. I I hope it explains what this story is about. In his younger days, writes the narrator, I knew George Isley intimately. I know him now. But the George Isley I knew of old, the arresting personality with whom I traveled, climbed, explored, is no longer with us. He is not here. He disappeared gradually... There is no George Isley, and that such an individuality could vanish, while still his outer semblance walks the familiar streets, normal apparently, and not yet fifty in the number of his years. Seems a tale, though difficult, well worth the telling. For I witnessed the slow submergence. It was very gradual. There was something questionable and sinister in the business that offered hints, however, of astonishing possibilities. Were there a corps of spiritual police, the matter might be partially cleared up, but since none of the churches have yet organized anything effective of this sort, one can only fall back upon variants of the blessed, quote, Mesopotamia and whispers of derangements and the like. Such labels explain as little as most other cliches in life. For that, 
well-groomed soldierly figure strolling down Piccadilly, watching the races, dining out. There's no derangement there. The face is not melancholy, the eye not wild. The gestures are quiet and the speech controlled. Yet the eye is empty, the face expressionless. Vacancy reigns there, provocative and significant. At closer quarters you may think questioning things, or you may think nothing, probably the latter. You may wonder why something continually expected does not make its appearance, and you may watch for the evidence of personality the general presentment of the man has led you to expect. Disappointed you may certainly be, but I defy you to discover the smallest hint of mental disorder or of derangement or nervous affliction. Absolutely nothing. Before long, perhaps, you may feel you are talking with a dummy, some well-trained automaton, a non-entity devoid of spontaneous life, and afterwards you may find that memory fades. For the truth is, as you perhaps divined, you have been sitting beside no one. You have been talking to, looking at, listening to no one. There is no George Isley. And the discovery, if you make it, will not even cause you to creep with the uncanniness of the experience because the exterior is so wholly pleasing. George Isley today is a picture with no meaning in it that charms merely by the harmonious coloring of its inoffensive subject. Now, this is PZ speaking. There's a part of me that wants to be George Isley. In other words, he's passed to a larger life, to use the prayer book. And yet... He is still here, and he is apparently charming merely by the harmonious coloring of an inoffensive subject. He moves undiscovered in the little world of society to which he was born, secure in the groove first habit has made comfortably automatic for him. No one guesses, none, that is, but the few who knew him intimately in early life. So perfect, indeed, is he in the manners of a commonplace, fashionable man that no woman in his, quote, set, end of quote, is aware that he differs from the type she is accustomed to. He turns a compliment with the accepted language of her textbook, motors, golfs, and gambles in the regulation manner of his particular world. He is an admirable, perfect automaton. He is nothing. He is a human shell. Well, now, uh, personally, I immediately thought of Westworld. <laughs> Remember Westworld with, uh, um, what was his name, Richard Benjamin, and I think also in it is uh, Yul Brynner. Um, what's happened in this is that this really quite remarkable, thoughtful, religious Englishman who's kept his, as, as you have to in England, even then you had to keep it under, he's kept his sort of deeper interests to himself, especially if they relate to religion. And he's gone off to Egypt with a couple of other people, and he's really made it his business to find out the meaning of life. And for him, George Isley, the meaning of life has become apparent in a very, very wide and broad uh, picture of the spirit world, but actually in the spiritual world that he associates it with, um, with actually it comes into play with, with the mon mon monotheism of, of that movie, The Egyptian, that bold and ridiculous and also wonderful movie from the early 50s that I've spoken about before, but more the novel than the movie. And um, we come to the very, very uh, end of the story, and we find out what actually happened. And um, I'll read the last paragraph. The horror of George kept me company in the hotel where he moved among the cosmopolitan humanity as a ghost that visits the sunlight. It has its home elsewhere. And he left just as he stayed. His heart, his emotions, his temperament and personality 
all this, his soul had gone elsewhere. Now, um, I recommend A Descent into Egypt because it describes, in my opinion, just about perfectly the sort of state that I myself would like to have. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It describes in a very specific storybook fictional form something that Blackwood very deeply um, perceived, that the purpose of living is to um, find oneself into touch, in touch with that love which will not let us go. It is that love which is above and beyond all the different malice and willfulness and defensiveness and fears and uh, tremendous worries that uh, each of us bears for all, in all going in all sorts of directions in our personal lives. And um, uh, George Isley uh, has found, uh, he, he has merged with that which is ultimate uh, before his actual physical death. He has done what Helen in... Uh, the Huxley book has done, but Blackwood has captured it in a kind of mystical story, which I very deeply recommend. Put yourself into it. I was uh, recently in a situation where I was just overcome with the um, uh, limitations and uh, eccentricities and rough edges and angularities and uh, mainly fears, both in myself and in some other people I know. And I was just overcome with the uh, tremendous sense that this has all got to die. And at the same time, I could see in relation to people I was interacting with some very wonderful qualities. I could see the, the hopes they had, the aspirations, as we talked about in that story, The Damned, people who had become religious in one form or another, uh, who actually were looking to be saved. Their ego was looking to be saved, and yet it wasn't enough. They hadn't gone far enough, and the farthest that you have to go is to do what George Isley ultimately finds it possible to do, which is to to kind of um, come into contact with that which is enduring and eternal, like a Thomas Cole painting, but earlier, but he sort of leaves behind this kind of habitual person who uh, will die and never be thought of again, and yet he's in a very good place. Now, one other uh, final um story of Blackwood's great magical gift is entitled The Centaur. And I'm going to read three uh, passages from it, which are um, unrelated, um, but um, express something very powerful and um, very relevant to what lives and what doesn't live. And what are we looking to be in touch with that uh, Jesus Christ himself was in touch with? Remember, um, a, a reader of the a listener of the podcast has sent me some extremely thoughtful emails of late about my podcast, Eternity, in which he said, well, now, isn't that a little bit what Jesus... I mean, Jesus was not recognized at the Sea of Galilee until he, he, he gave them evidence that it was he. He was not recognized in the upper room by any, uh, until he, uh, certainly by Thomas, until he, he, he gave them this incredible thing with the wound in the side. He was not recognized for like an hour by people who walked right next to him on the road to Emmaus, and it was took something uh, quite remarkable to give them the epiphany that it was he, and he was not recognized by Mary Magdalene at the tomb. In other words, he wasn't recognized. He appeared to them unawares, but a real person. Now, there's a lot to be said about that, and there's a lot in terms of Chalcedonian Trinitarian Christology to be said, but lay all that aside, he wasn't recognized. The memory, had he been recognized immediately and clearly, the stories would be different, because it's very, if this is not sort of Greek mythology, well, there's a little bit of relevance to a couple places in Greek mythology, like Balkas and Philemon, but the, um, the, uh, isn't that it? 
Glaucus and Philemon or Baucus? I think it's Baucus and Philemon who were recognized strangely through a through a, a milk jar that kept regurgitating its contents with fresh milk. Um, but the power of the story is he wasn't recognized after the flesh. And that implies that he was in an existence that was beyond the ego, <clears throat> clearly. So uh, allow this uh, story, uh, these stories by Blackwood, to sort of touch on that. So you're not constantly seeing religion as an attempt to prop up this thing that really does not need to be propped up. Someone said recently, I liked your old podcast more. Sorry, I like you more in the old days before the podcast because you were sort of helping me out in my troubles. And I, I wanted to say, well, I hope I was, and I'm glad I was, and I want to still. But I know that propping you up, propping up the ego is not the answer to the ego's problems. The ego needs to die. Luther realized this. The ego has got to go. So if I can if I can be part of that with a little reference to that which is God, that which is beyond the my Sharona, the the uh, that wonderful story about the children and the alien super eight, that then I'll be doing something. But um in the centaur, which is a massively interesting and um I think perceptive symbolic story. But it appears it, it, it purports to be taking place in quote modern day Europe. That is about 1911. He says some interesting things. Let me tell you about it and give you three quotes. The character is an Irishman who lives in England named O'Malley, and young O'Malley in his 30s is obsessed with finding the answer to life, and it's set up. I've not read the whole thing recently. I've got it in front of me right now, and it's all marked with all my underlinings, which I'm going to use. But my memory of the first part of the story, and I have it, the rest of it here, is that he finds himself on a boat in the Mediterranean in Greece, in going towards Greece and Turkey. And he uh, meets a very rough um, peasant from Ossetia in Russia. There's a very large Russian man and a son. And this, they obviously have something. They, they seem to be shadowing him, this very, very large, almost like a bear, and this boy, and uh, um, the the boy dies, as I remember. Um, my PDF starts at page 199 and concludes at page 299, I think. But uh, you can get it on the Internet. And um, he, 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 something is happening with this. Something is being told him through this rather mystic bear of an Ossetian from the Caucasus. And he follows him and uh, follows some various clues that are along and gets off a boat. And this story is being told mainly to a German rationalist doctor named Stahl, S-T-A-H-L. O'Malley is telling his story on board ship going back after the, the events have transpired. And Stahl is very open to what O'Malley... Stahl is a German intellectual and a very smart physician and is a rationalist, but he's actually, for reasons we find, quite open to what O'Malley has to tell him. And the long and the short is that um, O'Malley, uh, O'Malley follows the man and goes up into the Caucasus where uh, he has some very remarkable epiphany experiences. And he... Um, he, he, he finally sort of goes out of his body and has a mystical experience of seeing centaurs. He sees, he sees the freedom of, the, of being in a herd of centaurs. Now, you know what a centaur is. Uh, Fantasia, think Disney Fantasia. He sees a herd of centaurs who are all different colors, and he has a totally mystical experience of God in the freedom and the joy that has transcended the whole world in which he's been struggling so hard. And he sees the, the, the power of life that is beyond uh, our uh, human uh, visioning. He then um, 
has this, is uh, changed man. And he goes back to London, he tells his story, and Stahl, who has had actually a, a, a parallel experience, but has decided to reject it. I mean, it's the old uh, uh, Peter Cushing and the Mummy from 1960, when uh, the Egyptian priest says, have you not, do you not have, have you not had extraordinary epiphanies of, of the awesomeness of the Pharaoh Amun-Ra? And uh, Cushing, with tremendous hammer horror rationalism, says, well, I, I had the thought, but I rejected it. I had the thought, but I rejected it. Um, Stahl rejects the thought that O'Malley passes on to him, and O'Malley then returns to London and uh, um, tries to convince other people of what he's seen and ends up uh, really with a deep sense that ultimately this emancipation of that which is lasting God uh, is actually within his own grasp. And the conclusion of the story is uh, both downbeat and upbeat, in which O'Malley discovers that all that he's been searching all over the Caucasus for is in fact present in the most depressing um, uh, uh, hovel in London near Clapham. No, no, I lie. Near near uh, near St Pancras Station. That's where it is. Chris near St Pancras Station. Interestingly enough, that's one of the great uh, that's one of the great segments religiously of the James Hilton novel Random Harvest takes place uh, near um, in a rectory near St Pancras Station. There's really nothing there now that you could ever live in uh, in that highly overdeveloped area of London. But um, I want to read uh, three passages which convey a flavor of what he's saying and then end on what I hope is a positive note about the, um, the hope of finding the self. <clears throat> First, we have, um, we, we have what, what O'Malley goes up into the mountains uh, and, and, uh, with a great, a, a great aspiration. It is the aspiration that all of us really ultimately have. And I saw it recently when I was with someone. I, I sensed, uh, as he spoke to me about things, a, a man I've, I've, I've had a tremendous amount of... Um, I have all sorts of ideas about him and thoughts about him and experiences of him. But at one point, he began to talk about something that he was hoping for and that he loved, something that he loved very much. And he became a different person. He was like a child in the most beautiful ways. The wonder came across. And I thought, you know, I love this man. Whatever else is true about him in my experience, I love this man. Well, this is uh, how O'Malley briefly describes his experience. And then I'm going to talk about his hopes. And then I'm going to talk about what O'Malley... Um, understands about the world, and then I'm going to conclude with a very striking kind of application. As these two began their journey together into the wilder region of these stupendous mountains, this is towards the middle of the story, O'Malley says he realized clearly that the change he had dreaded as an inner catastrophe simply would mean the complete and final transfer of his consciousness from the, quote, without, end of quote, to the, quote, within, end of quote. It would involve the loss only of what constituted him a person among the external activities of the world today. He would lose his life to find it. In other words, there was going to happen to him, he hoped, something that would, uh, by which he would lose what constituted him a person among the external activities of the world today, and he would lose his life to find it. Well, I find that very reminiscent of what was we heard earlier about George Isley, and what I myself would, gosh, I mean, what do you want but that? Now I'm going to um, read uh, uh, The Irishman, as he's often referred to. The Irishman, after he begins to have these extraordinary experiences with the centaurs, which are simply a vision 
which he later believes he could have in Winter Garden, Florida, or in um, St. Pancras, London. Remember, um, by the way, that Carlyle uh, said uh, at the end of the remarkable novel relevant to these matters, um, Sartor Resartus, that uh, the professor uh, who had come to find the truth of living um, finally disappeared, as we will find O'Malley does. And yet, as to where he was, Thomas Carlyle says, I don't actually know where he is, but I I think he's actually right here in London. Um, That's... That book is kind of a a philosophical expression with an awful lot of romantic love thrown in and an awful lot of hard-to-read allusions to cultural life of the uh, 1840s and 1830s in England. Nevertheless, um, this is what happens to O'Malley. Now, this is how he sees when he begins to reflect on the world he left, the world of the ego, the, the world we will leave when we die, no matter what, we will leave this world. No matter where we go to, we will leave this world. He reflects very vividly on the world uh, around him. <clears throat> what men called solid, real, and permanent, he now knew as the veriest shadows of existence, fleeting, unsatisfactory, false. Their dreary make-believe had all his life oppressed him. He knew now why he knew now why men driving their forces outwards for external possessions had lost the way so utterly. You know, I read that wrong. Their jury make believe had all his life oppressed him. He now knew why. Men driving their forces outwards for external possessions had lost the way so utterly. It truly was amazing. He no longer quite understood how such feverish strife was possible to intelligent beings. The fur merchant, the tourists, his London friends, the great majority of men and women he had known, pain in their hearts and weariness in their eyes, the sad, strained faces, the furious rush to catch a little pleasure they deemed joy. It seemed like some wild, senseless game that madness plays. He found it difficult to endow them, one and all, with any sense of life. He saw them groping in thick darkness, snatching with hands of shadow at things of even thinner shadow, all moving in a wild and frantic circle of artificial desires, while just beyond, absurdly close to many, blazed the great living sunshine of reality. If only they would turn and look. I'm going to finish this paragraph, which finishes on page 212. In fleeting moments, these sordid glimpses of that dark and shadow world still afflicted his outer sight, that nightmare he had left behind. It played like some gloomy memory through a corner of consciousness not yet wholly disentangled from it. Well, the um, uh, power of the um, uh, transcendence, which the character in uh, The Centaur achieves is both noble and powerful, as I see it all the time in love, because people actually, all the bad things they do are almost all some form of falsely applied love, some form of what the traditional Christianity and Judaism and the Bible would call, and by the way, Islam would call idolatry. But it's putting your love in all the wrong places. Uh, Right now, I wish I could finish this up with that wonderful song, you know, what was it called? Um, that song, that, that movie with John Travolta, it was sort of the urban cowboy. Looking for love in all the wrong places. God bless the day I discovered you. Looking for you. Well, um, 
Vince something or other. The power of this is that uh, he captures this. Um, the aspiration for that which is enduring. And you see this in everybody. That's what it's all about. And yet the fact that it's all going into vanity, silliness, shadow, nonsense, ridiculousness, uh, all, everywhere. I mean, whether it's in my town or your town, whether it's in the big city, whether it's an academic, whether it's in the groove, or whether it's here, there, whether it's in the stoa, or whether it's, you know, in... Uh, the land of the Epicurean, whether it's in uh, Brockton, Massachusetts, a la James Gould Cousins, or whether it's in Shangri-La, a la James Hilton, whether it's in The Garden, that wonderful story which actually finds enduring love in uh, Kipling, or whether it's in um, the uh, book I'm reading now, Eyeless in Gaza, where Anthony Bevis must find what he must find, and he has the courage to, and the fortune of having a wonderful teacher to bring him into what he must find. And I'm going to close then by uh, reading one final paragraph, um, which I think is absolutely great. And uh, I say it to any of you who are in, the, who want to take this view of life that is actually, uh, this life is death, and the life we come to, we have sheds, we have shards of it, and rainbows of it, and pictures of it, damsels in distress. Remember that scene in Damsels in Distress, a Whit Stillman's new film in which somebody sees a rainbow. Finally, a fraternity guy with a little bit of help from a love from a beautiful woman, girl, sees, uh, is able to see the colors. Well, um, when you see the colors, anyone who's come out of depression will know exactly what I'm talking about. You're really where love is. You're, you're where the true self of, of the human race is. And that's the, the, the person that Algernon Blackwood is helping us to see. And his fiction is very powerful. And so I do recommend The Centaur, although it's fairly... Uh serious book. Uh, perhaps Descent into Egypt will be a better start, although that will throw you off because you'll think he's going to you know, Anubis, and he's not. He's going to that which is uh, final and life-giving as opposed to a place of death like the house in The Damned. But n n notice this. Um, he see, One of the things he says, and this is the last thing I'll read, uh, Blackwood has a character say this, uh, a wonderful character say this, I have seen the truth that priests and doctors are the only possible and necessary profession in the world, and that they should be really but a single profession. It is so interesting in this world in which we live, in which clergy are sort of all thrown to one side, even now in hospitals, you know, clergy are <clears throat> considered very, are very insecure because they're, you know, they're, 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 it's not like the old days when clergy were, it, were able to be in the hospital just as much as doctors, and it was, there was very much a common cause thing going on, and now, you know, you, even as a clergyman, when I'm wearing my collar, I have to get a special, I, they, they make no exemption, at least many hospitals, except Catholic hospitals, but most big hospitals, you're, you're treated as if you're just anyone else and you can't go into a door that says you can't go into a door. I, that, you know, I'm not fighting that. That's the way it is. But I always want to say, but you don't understand, um, you, just as I wish I could say to, to, a, to a, any group of people, um, as a priest or minister, I, I, can, I, can, I can help you to see the nonsensical character of everything you're doing. You know, I can, I can, I can help you because I'm in touch with a tradition that is very long and very long, um, deep and goes way, way back. And the tradition at its best sees through the shadow play and theater of the world in such a wonderful way and, uh, uh, is pointing always to that which is ultimately love and that which is ultimately eternal. And all the, the things you're trying to do to, to run around doing this, doing that, thinking you're trying to find an answer, even in the hospitals. Um, you know, this is BS, you know. <laughs> 
most of this means nothing. It's sound and fury signifying nothing. And the, and the priest and doctor are one and the same. I, I want to give you one ex- final example. Uh, a friend of mine in school, uh, someone who went to a different school but whom I love, his dad was the um, the uh, movie critic for the New Yorker magazine when we were growing up. <clears throat> and uh, he went to a critic showing, perhaps he had a little bit to drink. I, I assume he had, but I don't know that. But I do know the story is true. He went to a, a showing of last year at Marienbad. By the way, that word is pronounced in German, Marienbad. But it, the way we've received it, it's last year at Marienbad. Woody Allen refers to that movie. And that movie is a very hard movie to understand. It's like life. It, it, you know, what's ha- what in the heck is happening? And I know now what is happening in the movie, but I, that's not the point. He was watching this art house movie that was Alain René, and it was very hard to understand. And no one in the movie, we were all supposed to love it. Everybody was supposed to love this movie because it was so intellectual, so deep, and so layered, so nuanced, and had so many possibilities, and had so many ideas. And we were just supposed to, you know, it was just... We were just supposed to revel in its um, cerebral complexity and its slowness. And about two-thirds of the way through the movie, this man, whose name I will not use, but he was, in fact, the movie critic at that period for the New Yorker magazine, got up about four rows and turned towards the audience, because he was sort of in the front, and he was able to turn towards the audience watching the last third of last year at Marion Bad, and he said... Guys, people, can't you see? This is bullshit. This movie is bullshit. <laughs> We're talking about the early 60s. That was a major thing. That caused a, everybody laughed because they assumed he was, you know, etc. But uh, it was so, at one level, I mean, at one level, any movie that demands as much explanation as last year at Marion Bad, I believe, does. And I, I think it, you know, um, I have something to say about that movie. But on In the Now, that was a fabulous thing to say. People, what are you doing here? This is, I just think that is unbelievable. And I present it to you as the power of uh, Blackwood's um, belief in the aspiration, which we all have to transcend the ego, which comes at death. People, let's make it sooner. Let's make it now. So we're not all involved in this shadow play of theater. Theater Stücke running around, uh, wasting our time in sound and fury, signifying nothing. And let's uh, let's look for that which is really the the, the pearl of great price here. And uh, um, isn't it amazing that Blackwood, the Sandemanian reprobate, understands that the great human need for healing can, in fact, only be found in a person who is in touch with something like the spiritual or religious life of the world. Thank you very much, and God bless you. I wish I was a spaceman, the fastest guy alive. I'd fly you around the universe in Fireball XL5. Way out in space together, compass of the sky. Would be a fireball, a fireball. Every time I gazed into your starry eyes, we'd take the path to Jupiter, and maybe very soon we'd cruise along the Milky Way and land upon the moon to a wonderland of stardust. We'll zoom away to Mars. My heart would be a fireball.